When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so excited to be here with you. To me, summer is all about easy sewing. Usually my summers are just jam-packed full of activities and time spent in the garden and traveling, and that means that my time I spend in the sewing room is limited. And because of that, I like to choose easy projects in the summer and also use time-saving tricks so that I can get a lot accomplished without needing to spend too much time indoors. So one of my favorite time-saving tricks is strip piecing. When I learned to strip piece, my whole world changed, and now I'll actually alter patterns specifically to use that technique where I can. So for those unfamiliar with the term, strip piecing is a technique where you sew long strips of fabric together and then subcut them into smaller units needed for your quilt. So this technique is often used when you're making a lot of four patch, nine patch, or even rail fence blocks. So instead of piecing together a bunch of small rectangles or squares individually to make a blocker unit, You sew just a few seams on longer strips and then cut them to the size you need. It truly saves so much time, and I find that it makes my piecing more accurate, especially if the pieces are small. So I have a few tips to share for strip piecing to make it easier and more accurate in your projects. And then later, I'll share the math for how to make this technique work for any pattern. So tip one is get an accurate and straight quarter inch seam. Now this seems very obvious, uh, but it is especially important when you're doing strip sets because you're cutting a lot of units from one strip set. So if your strip set is off in any way, uh, you may end up with wonky strips, uneven pieces, and that can all cause problems later when you're piecing things together. So I like to use a leader strip when I'm sewing strip sets. Uh, So I sew in a little scrap of fabric before I start sewing my strips together. And this just ensures that by the time I'm sewing from, you know, that scrap of fabric onto my strips that I'm sewing straight and accurately and smoothly. Another suggestion is to use your quarter inch foot with a guide if your machine has one, or even create your own guide by adding a bumper of like a washi tape or painter's tape to help guide your fabrics. And then before you subcut anything, make sure your strip set is pieced accurately. Uh, It's really easy to rip out and redo just one seam, but it is harder to rip out and do uh, those redo seams once it's all cut up. So just check your corner and seam allowance and make sure everything is turning out the right size before you cut things. Tip two is press as smoothly as possible. So when you're pressing the strip set, 
I like to keep the steam setting off because I do find that steam can kind of pull at the strips and distort them. Then I press in one smooth movement with the right side of my strips facing up. So I hold one end of the strip set in place with my hand so things stay straight when I'm pressing. And if you notice that one side of your strip is leaning in a certain direction, this is happens really easily. You can just straighten it with your hand and then use the iron to straighten the pieces. So this technique took me some time to master, um, but don't give up. Like I, I promise once you do it often enough, like it will come really naturally. Um, I also find that it's easier to press between adding each strip of fabric and trying instead of trying to press multiple seams at once on a strip set. So after I sew two strips together, I press before I add any more. Okay, tip three is to cut carefully. So once all of your strips are sewn and pressed, it's time to cut. So I like to line the top of my strip set with a line on my cutting mat. Then just as you would square fabric up before cutting your fabric, uh, you'll square one end of your strip set up by trimming just one end straight. And then when cutting, align a line on your ruler with one of the center seams. So you know that the strips are straight and accurate. If you align your ruler with the top or bottom of the strip sets, you may notice after a few cuts that the center seams are leaning diagonally a little bit. And that's just because the ends of the strip sets, the top and bottom can have a slightly different, um, you know, angle based on how they're pressed. Um, But your center seam should be pieced and pressed straight. So that's a really great place to align your ruler. Now, to make this work for any pattern where you're sewing the same fabrics together and multiple blocks, look at the pattern. Here is an example. If the pattern is for four patch units made with two fabrics and you're cutting squares at two and a half inch square and you need 10 squares per color, you want to multiply 2.5 inches by the 10 needed squares. That's 25 inches. So you'll cut a strip of fabric two and a half inches wide and 25 inches long. And because you need to square up the strips up before you're cutting, I always like to throw in a few extra inches to allow myself some wiggle room. So say that's two and a half inches by 28 inch strips. And you'll cut that strip in the two colors you need, sew those two strips together, and then cut them into two and a half inch wide segments. So sometimes you'll need so many squares uh, that you'll need to make multiple strip sets to get the right number of units. Or sometimes you may find that your accuracy goes down the longer the strip is. This happens to me. So a lot of patterns call for strip sets that use the width of fabric, which is 42 inches wide. Uh, That is a really long strip. And I find that length hard to um, cut initially, Uh, I find my strips are wonkier when I sew them together. I find it kind of impossible to press. Um, So, you know, it just gets wonky. So if a pattern does call for 42 inch wide strip sets, I'll choose to make two 21 inch wide strip sets so that I have a lot more control over my piecing and I can keep things accurate. 
So you can see that you can really customize this technique for your pattern and your comfort levels. Um, strip piecing is so fun and it really makes fast work of making blocks. So I hope these tips help the next time you're strip piecing. I actually just filmed a video of this technique. So if you're a visual person or just haven't done a lot of strip piecing before, I will link to the video in the show notes so that you can see it in action. We're going to take a quick ad break, but when we come back, we're chatting with Ty Flanagan. Welcome back. I'm now handing the mic over to Elizabeth for her chat with the amazing Ty Flanagan. They have a really detailed and interesting conversation, so I'll let them get right to it. Hi, Ty. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today and being a guest. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks. Um, so I think I first discovered you and your amazing patterns when I was, of course, scrolling on Instagram, like yeah. how I discover <laughs> everybody these days, right? And yeah, same here. I, I was just like in this rabbit hole and I was deep diving into stuff and I came across one of your posts and I like stopped in my tracks because it was so <laughs> amazing. And I just had to take a closer look and a deep dive into what you do. Um, and it's just so fascinating. So I'm just really excited to learn more about you and um, just introduce some of our listeners to your designs as well. Well, thank you. I'm flattered to hear that. The thing that I enjoy most is like the process. So it makes me really happy that something like that resonated with you as well when you were scrolling through Instagram. Yeah, it was just like unlike anything I had seen before. And I was like, I have to know more about this. So <laughs> I think I'd like to just jump right in from the very beginning. I always find it fascinating to um, kind of discover quilters origin stories, like how they first discovered quilting. Did someone teach them? You know, what was it about it that they first became intrigued about this craft and this art form? So what's your origin story? How did you um, first become introduced to quilting and fall in love with this craft? That's a good question. Um, so I've always been like a crafty person. Um, I was a maker before I was familiar with the term maker. That's really common these days. But growing up, I loved making and breaking things. Um, uh, it's just kind of the process of learning. And so I was, I love art. I loved making stuff with my hands. I loved taking things apart and figuring out how they worked. Um, sometimes I got them back together, not always, to my parents' <laughs> chagrin. But that was the kind of kid I was. So part like I don't know exactly how old I was I was probably like eight or ten and I made my mom teach me how to use her sewing machine she has one of those black singer featherweights um yeah. that a lot of people are familiar I with sew on one to this day <laughs> yeah they're they're great they're um fairly indestructible so it was a good machine to learn on because I did break it but you can usually get a singer featherweight back together yep. um so I think I had to super glue the bobbin winder back on because I broke that off at one point but it's still it's still working <laughs> <laughs> I still have the machine and it's still up and running so nice. um it survived but that's the machine I learned how to uh sew on and so I really wanted to use it as like a tool in that world of making stuff. And for me, it was a tool to make curtains and to make pillowcases. And later on, maybe when I was like more of an adult with my own place, I used it to do things like reupholster furniture. And um, so it's kind of working in that dimension for the most part. Um, and then I started doing a little bit more sewing, like I made pouches and 
got a little bit more complex in my approach with sewing. And then in 2016, I was just kind of, I think I was a little burnt out at work and just staring at a screen eight to 10 hours a day. And I was like, I need to do something offline that's not on a screen, that's kind of like an analog activity. And I was like, oh, let me dust off my sewing machine, which was just in the closet, one of those like heavy duty singer sewing machines. Mm -hmm. And I decided to make a quilt. I don't really know exactly where that came from, but um, like that specific idea just kind of popped into my head and I was like, okay, I know how to sew. Maybe I'll try sewing a quilt. Um, I didn't really know what was involved in patchwork or anything like that because I had never really seen anyone make a quilt. But mm -hmm. growing up, our home had was full of quilts, but they were all made by people I never met, like great grandparents and great great grandparents. And so they were very traditional, very threadbare, very loved. Um, and so I said, okay, I'll make a quilt too. So I got a book at the library. I went down YouTube rabbit holes, learning <laughs> kind of the ins and outs of patchwork for beginners. And I made my first quilt starting in 2016. Uh, I don't think I finished it until 2017 because it, it was a process. Yeah. But um, once I did that, I just, a light bulb went off in my head and I just said, oh, there's so much you can do with it since it's really just grids and shapes and connecting these shapes together into bigger units. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're blocks, sometimes they're other shapes. And then um, that's really where I just got stuck in this whole rabbit hole of, of researching different geometry, different grids, and then figuring out how does that work with fabric? Yeah, And so that's been what I've been obsessed with for the last six years. Yeah. Um, amazing journey. And so you've really just kind of, you know, learned the basics and then made it your own, discovered your own style and what you were passionate about. And you, you touched a little bit on like geometry and how that is like, has a big part in a lot of your patterns in creation. Like where did that love for geometry and patterns that like repeat and things like that stem from? Um, I think from a few different places. So partially like the quilts I had from my great, great grandmas, um, they were like Lemoyne stars. So those eight pointed stars, um, and they were arranged in a specific layout for the quilt top. And so I, I had that as a visual reference where I had like an eightfold star or eight pointed star kind of repeating across a, a quilt top. And I was probably researching patterns like that. And then um, looking at different, I think I started in a very traditional uh, mentality because I was more thinking of what are the quilts I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, things like that, or like an Irish chain. Um, and then I also have a background in Middle Eastern studies. So I lived and worked in the Middle East quite a bit um, from being right out of college till my uh, kind of like my first few years of professional life. Um, so I had a lot of exposure to that part of the world where there's a very deep tradition of decorative arts as well. Mm. Um, also involving textiles a little bit too, like in, especially in Egypt with the tent makers or the Haimiya uh, tradition, but mostly you, I would see it in like rigid materials, like ceramics, um, mosaics or wood carvings or metalwork or paper or paintings and things like that. And so, um, I got really interested in seeing if I could translate some of those motifs that I was familiar with into something that was more fluid, like textiles. Mm -hmm. um, so some of it, so 
also given my background um, in Middle Eastern studies, I really wanted to start with like researching and learning everything I could about these patterns. Um, how are they constructed? Um, was there like a quote unquote right or wrong way to approach it? Because there's different methods to construct it. And I just wanted to get kind of a more of a solid grounding on the geometry. And then um, it, I enjoyed the challenge of taking those shapes that I had spent so much time getting to know and figuring out, okay, how the heck am I gonna sew these together? Because some of them are obvious when you're working with like squares or triangles or things like that. And then a lot of times when you're working with things like stars, you have to break them down in order to put them back together. And mm -hmm. so I started learning different ways. How would you deconstruct the shape? Um, is there an efficient way to do it? Is there a more elegant way to do it? Um, and that just led me into a whole rabbit hole of um, sewing methods and skills. Mm -hmm. Like what are the different ways to achieve a precise uh, piecing? So I used a lot of paper piecing initially or um, learning more about fabric grain. How does that impact the finished product? Um, so yeah, they kind of, a lot of things came, came together where I was learning more about the geometry, but then when it comes to fabric and textiles, there's just a whole uh, order of things like there's rules and there's rules that can be broken like mm -hmm. all good rules should be broken <laughs> but just like learning um, different ways to approach the same problem kind of give me gave me different ways to to do it so like I like to think of it as like my sewing toolbox mm -hmm. um, there's obvious things in there like my sewing machine my pins um, things like that but then most of it's made up of skills and techniques so like being confident in just sewing two pieces of fabric together or using more advanced techniques like partial seams, Y seams, um, understanding fabric grain, like all of that is in your, your sewing toolbox. And the more that's in there, the more options you have for like how to explore these and execute these patterns. Mm -hmm. And that's something you really excel at in your patterns is kind of um, teaching people because you've done so much trial and error, I'm assuming, you know, trying to make all this geometry and these patterns work best. And you touched a little bit on how you start out doing a lot of foundation paper piecing, and then you've found um, how to adapt them into more traditional patchwork piecing methods. And what method do you, you know, currently love pursuing yourself? Yeah, I remember when I first learned to paper piece, it was I think for like a lot of people, it's just kind of like it hurts your brain because everything's <laughs> backwards and you're not, it's not quite the way you are thinking because you're sewing from the back and you're mm -hmm. attaching things to another piece of the foundation. Um, but it gives you a really exact result because that foundation helps you cut things, helps you align things. Um, and so it's kind of like sewing with training wheels all on in a sense where you, the foundation does a lot of the work of keeping the fabric together, keeping it from stretching giving you precise markings and guides for sewing and cutting. Um, so I, it took a while, but I embraced FPP and used that for a lot of my initial quilts because I knew it would give me a consistent result. Um, and I was worried about things like bias because I didn't really understand them. I knew mm -hmm. that they might throw a wrench in the works, but I didn't know how they would do that or right. how it manifests. How important it is. Yeah, I just knew that like, you should cut your squares like this, but I didn't know why. Like, mm -hmm. I don't, I, I didn't know why it should be on grain versus not on grain. Um, and so I kind of learned through trial and error. And also a lot of my knowledge got 
deeper when I started making garments hmm. um, because fabric grain there matters for different reasons, but it also matters. And so you kind of see how fabric drapes and where, when you do want it to stretch and when you don't want it to stretch, like you want that waistband to not stretch, <laughs> stretch out of place, but you, right. maybe you want a little stretch in the body of the garment or things like that. And so learning to sew garments really informed my sewing practice quite a bit. Um, and so that has come back to my patchwork and quilting practice as well, where um, the benefits of paper piecing for me um, are that precision, but there's cons too, just because like it's every time I do it, like every six months, I kind of have to relearn how to do it and get, yes. get my brain working in, in reverse and all of that. Um, but it's also not the most fabric efficient because um, mm -hmm. you're, you're trimming and truing up a lot, which gives you that precise result. But um, when you're working with like a limited set of fabrics, so a lot of my recent quilts, I used hand dyed fabrics mm -hmm. and I just didn't have the heart to waste any of them with like <laughs> some yeah. paper stuff. So I decided, okay, this time I'm just going to piece it and I'm going to set myself up for success by doing the following. I'm going to pre-wash and starch my fabrics. Don't always do that, but I've started doing that more just because that takes some questions out of the mix. I'm going to pay attention to fabric grain and bias. And I just start with really precise cuttings. So for me, even if I'm just making one quilt, I will make myself a set of acrylic templates. Um, and that gives me really precise cuts. It gives me really accurate repeat cuts. And then from there, um, that's half the battle. Then I just have to sew it together, <laughs> which, which is, it together. Can be a challenge, which can be a challenge, but like knowing that the thing, knowing that your pieces should fit together and then getting them to fit together, I guess are two different things, but, um, you kind of learn as you go and you get that, you, you kind of figure out what your, your quadrant should look like, whether it's a little scant or not and all of that. So you should, a lot of it for me is just starting with accurate pieces now I mostly piece traditionally. So just kind of combining two pieces of fabric together and building those units into bigger units or to, or into blocks. Um, and a lot of my recent quilts have involved kind of non-traditional assembly. So maybe I'll have a block, but I can't sew them together in rows. I might have to sew them with partial seams and kind of zigzag them together in a sense. Um, and for me, that's kind of the fun. I really like to go down these like construction rabbit holes. Yeah, that seems what using I'm using all those techniques, you know? Yeah, I feel like that's what I'm hearing um you say is that you really enjoy like the process and figuring it out. And like you were saying earlier, like in your childhood, like growing up and trying to like deconstruct something and then like put it back together and finding out the best way best ways to do that. Um so that's really fascinating. And I can see that sometimes when you post your time lapse videos on Instagram. I could like literally just watch those on repeat because they're so fascinating to see you. A, you know, it looks like you're sewing extremely fast, which is always how the dream, right? That we could just like right. put together all of these pieces that quickly. But also just it's like fascinating to watch those videos and see kind of your non-traditional way of assembling them. Cause like, like you said, not everything comes together in block forms. Um yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the really time fun. lapses are fun too. They're they can be misleading. Like you like it's it's usually like 30 minutes or two hours of sewing in 30 seconds. So right. it's not, it gives you like a sense for like what's going on in the studio in a very high level, but I'm not, yeah. I usually am not going kind of deep dive into the assembly process, right. but it's, it's kind of fun just to kind of, and it helps me focus. Cause if I know like, Oh, I want to film for two hours, it keeps me from getting distracted. And I just kind of cruise through a few blocks. 
Yeah. Got to get the content. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, yeah. And I had saw that, I mean, so many of your patterns have like such precision, so many tiny intricate pieces. Um, And I saw in a recent post that you had done the math and you said that you had used over 1700 pieces of fabric (laughs) and like 450 Y seams, which for me is like, 449 <laughs> way too many Y seams in my opinion, but um props to you. I mean, that is just so impressive. And then um, I also love that you post like the back of your quilts, quilt tops. Um, and you can just like really see your precision there and how much care you put into pressing. Um, do you have any tips for people on you know how to get that precision either in pressing or in their quarter inch seams? Any tools you've picked up along the way, or is it just like being really detail oriented. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll say it's just a lot of it is trial and error. Um, I have also just, as I've made more things, I've kind of adjusted my expectations and my philosophy. So like my first few quilts, I was just really excited to that they came together. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the points were together, but not all the points. And that was that for me, that was a win. Um, and so just I think with each project, I have different expectations and different um, expectations going into it. And then those get adjusted. And then the outcome I'm usually quite pleased with, but I'll, I'll definitely learn everything with, uh, I'll definitely learn something with every project. Um, Cause I would say half of my quilts start as a proof of concept and I start mm-hmm. thinking it will come together, but I don't know if or when <laughs> it will come together. Um, Lately, it's been more the emphasis on the win because there's been several works in progress where it just maybe I need six months off and then I take it up with fresh eyes and finish it off. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have learned that for me, my biggest investment is always going to be my time. So I've, I used to really think about like how much am I spending on fabric? What do I really need this template or this ruler? Um, especially when you're starting a craft for the first time, it's like every project you have to buy something and mm-hmm. um, whether it's a template or a notion or getting some th- matching thread. Um, but since I've been doing this for about six years, uh, my studio is pretty well stocked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a, a lot of different fabrics to work with and a lot of different notions. Um, and I can focus more on just the project itself. And I know that if I'm going to spend ballpark 40 to 80 hours on a quilt top the amount I spent on a fabric or a new ruler is really insignificant if I put any dollar amount on my time so Mm -hmm. if if I value my time at $15 an hour or $30 an hour um, we're already talking like one to two thousand dollars for this quilt top right Right. so a hundred bucks for fabric is is not too significant in my book. And I know that everyone has different considerations and different calculations, but that's just kind of how I think of it mentally. Mm-hmm. Where am I making investments? And my inv- my biggest investment is my time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I'm going to sew 400, 450 Y seams, um, I'll start slow and I'll just kind of get into a rhythm. And then maybe after 50, I figure out a way to do it a little bit more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, you kind of get into a groove, um, get into that like assembly, uh, factory assembly mentality and you kind of crush through them. Um, For me, the hardest part is that middle to late, middle almost finished part where it's kind of like, you can kind of see the finish line, but there's still so much work to do. And for me, I just really need to take a breather. I needed to remind myself if I rush through this, I might make some mistakes and I'll probably regret 
regret it because I've invested 60 hours at this point and I don't want to spend 10 hours seam ripping and fixing things. So sometimes you just have to walk away, uh, take a breather. Uh, but sometimes you're just in the kind of like in that space where you can cruise through it and you just, uh, sew for eight hours and don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. So, um, for the pressing, I think that kind of falls into, into line where I realized that, um, it makes it like, I've spent so much time piecing things together. I will have a much easier time quilting it if everything's nice and flat. <laughs> so I, I, every quilt top I make, I've kind of reserved time and energy to make sure that those seams are the way I want them to be. Um, recently, I've really liked pressing things open just because it gives me a really nice flat surface for quilting. Um, my first quilts, I usually press to the dark because I like to stitch in the ditch and that really facilitates that. Um, but lately I've been long, long arming more quilts and doing some like all over quilting, some straight line quilting. So like those flat seams really help uh, there. Um, and yeah, as I work, I also um, take care, like I, I usually don't uh, use a steamy iron or a hot iron until I have most of my quilt top done. I usually roll most of my seams. Um, and I don't know why I started doing that, but I was kind of worried about um, bias edges and getting things out of whack, especially with a steamy iron. And so I, I use like a, a seam roller. The one I have is a Violet Craft seam roller, but there's a lot of different ones out there. And so it's usually on my supply list when I'm teaching because I want mm -hmm. students to try, try it out, uh, seam rolling, because you can get really flat seams. Um, you don't need to have an iron going, uh, a hot iron in your studio. And... Um, yeah, the seam rolling is really, for me, how I get a really flat quilt top. Then once I have maybe like half my quilt top done, I'll press that nicely because it's easier to press half a quilt versus a whole quilt. And then I'll have two halves of a quilt that are pressed and I sew those together and then I'm good to go. Okay. And I assume you are a big fan of pinning. like Yeah, I've gone through different phases there. I think, so when I first started to sew... And I think a lot of beginner um, patchwork patterns kind of set you up for quick success, which mm -hmm. is great because I think it's really important to have success early on to stay motivated. Um, so a lot of it's like, I wouldn't say like skimping around the details or whatever, but it's like sew some strips together, subcut those strips, reassemble them, and you have the following pattern. And I think it's a really nice way to get um, yeah, to have that sense of accomplishment and kind of see how it works and practice your quarter inch seam and practice uh, assembly like that. Um, but then you realize, oh, maybe there's some benefit to backstitching and securing mm -hmm. my stitches. Maybe there's some benefit to pinning here and there. Um, I think my first few years of quilting, I would do anything to avoid pinning. <laughs> so I would, I would be like, okay, if I just nest my seams, then I'll be good to go. You know, like have the seam allowances pointing the opposite direction and just feed them under the machine. And that works to it a certain extent, but there's really no substitute for pinning unless you're talking about basting. So, <laughs> um, and I think, and I think the more, again, I think the more garment garments I made, I realized Oh, there is a benefit to a lot of garments will have you hand base things in place, mm -hmm. which is really just pinning with thread. And then you get a really accurate final product. And it, 
I, I don't know, it's one of those light bulb moments where it's like, uh, I've been avoiding hand sewing because I thought it was so arduous, but really hand basting takes a minute or two. Mm-hmm. Then you can do your top stitching and then you have a fantastic result. So it's like totally worth it. And I think that my feelings towards pinning kind of evolved in the, in, in parallel where it's like, maybe I spend more time pinning than sewing, but I'm really pleased with the results. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm totally okay with that. Yeah. It seems like, um, you've thought a lot about, I like what you were saying about how, you know, your time is also precious, but if you're going to pour your time and your heart into something, you want the end result to be something you're super proud of. Um, and I think what you were saying earlier about, you know, quilting is an expensive hobby and for non-quilters, they don't always see all of the expenses that go into quilting. And a lot of times, even as quilters, we don't think about our time um, and how that's part of part of that expense um, and pouring our time into something. Hey, it's Lindsay. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but we have to take a quick ad break. We'll be back soon with more from Ty. When you're working on new things, what, um, what's, I'm just curious kind of what your day or week is like as a quilter. Do you find yourself quilting most days or is it more of a weekend thing for you? Um, I love to hear about how much time people are putting into their craft. It really is variable. And, um, yeah, so let's say over the last six years, I have mostly done it part-time. Um, I would say two of those years I've done it full-time just between, having regular day jobs and taking time to focus on my craft. Um, right now, again, I, I'm doing it part-time. I have my day job and I do my patchwork when I have free time, mostly on the weekends. Um, and personally, I really like having that balance. Um, the years where I did patchwork, quilting, textile art full-time, I would say I was more stressed about producing because I I wanted to, maybe I needed to have content to, to gain followers, to get more um, people interested in my patterns, to potentially make some more sales. Um, also from what I've experienced, there's like a whole different, a whole s- slew of models and different people in the industry who make this their full-time living, but usually you have to diversify your revenue stream. So you, um, the thing I love doing is making quilts. So that's a finished product with a very high price tag for the reasons we just talked about. It takes a lot of time um, and a little bit of material cost, but mostly just time. Um, that's really not scalable. <laughs> I could make, uh, I could just make quilt tops all day, every day. I'd probably get sick of it, but I'd also, um, it's just not, it's not sustainable for real, really for a full-time income. You would need teaching revenue. You need pattern revenue. You'd need to sell notions. Um, you could do fabric. Um, you could do, there's like a whole bunch of things where you could partner and do different, have different revenue streams. But I, I know the thing that I really love doing is making quilts. The thing that I don't love doing is selling. <laughs> and that's a key, that's a key part of being an independent uh, uh, producer, a small business. Um, I'm not good at marketing. I'm not good at selling. I'm not good at that aspect of it. Um, so I enjoy making some, some revenue out of my passion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I learned pretty quickly that I would just be stressed if it was my only income, uh, stream. So, mm-hmm. so for that, I think I'm lucky that I can do it on the side. 
Um, I don't have to be stressed about producing a certain quota or selling a certain amount of templates. Um, so for me, kind of everything I do is bonus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realize it's different for everyone. So um, what else? I, yeah, just like the, I would always think about how could I scale? Um, I could sell more patterns. I could sell more templates. Um, I could teach more. But that also takes away time from making the things I love to make. So right. it's it's just a give and take. Um, so right now, I'm really happy to be able to focus on projects I want to focus on. I can teach when I want to teach, uh, which is very which is pretty infrequently for me. But I do enjoy the aspect as well. So when you're um, you know dreaming up a new creation and a new pattern, I'm curious what that process is like. Like where do you you find inspiration. You said you've influenced a lot with some of your Middle Eastern studies, maybe some, um, you know, Islamic or patterns or tile work and things like that. Like, do you find inspiration and then you go straight to like pen and paper and sketch it out or, you know, what gets you really excited about it and gets you uh, motivated? Yeah. Usually it's just like, I guess, um, as the kids would say these days, vibing with a pattern, but, um, (laughs) I liked, I get exposed to different things a lot through travel or through, um, I'll take geometry classes that just like teach you how to construct different traditional patterns, uh, usually in the Islamic geometry tradition or Moroccan geometry. Um, I didn't even know geometry classes were a thing you could do as an adult. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Maybe let me take a quick step back. So like one thing that I really like to do and thinking about inspiration. I think we all get inspired from the things around us. So, um, and that naturally trickles into the work we wanna make. And so for me, I like to expose myself to different communities of practice. Um, And so one of those communities of practice is sewing and quilting. So when I open up my Instagram, most of the posts are works in progress or what are people doing or a new pattern that someone's releasing. So I do get inspired from that content, Um, but I also like to diversify it. So I follow a whole slew of people who just focus on geometry. Um, They might be focused on analyzing patterns, uh, finding elegant solutions to constructing complicated um, repeat patterns. A lot of those folks might execute their patterns more in like watercolor or pen and paper, or some people use uh, laser cutters, digital technology to execute these patterns. Um, So I I do see a variety of people who take geometric patterns and then translate them into other arts, um, kind of like the plastic arts traditionally. Mm. Um, And so I like to see those, I get inspired, I might see a pattern where I want to take, take my own stab at it or see if I can construct it or follow someone's tutorial on how to construct it. And then my brain as a quilter usually goes to, how does this work in fabric? Um, Because once you have the shapes, it's like, okay, what do I do with these shapes? Where would, you need seams, you need seam allowance. Uh, You don't want too many seams in one place. So my, like how you slice and dice and reconstruct um, is different. And I might think of like a few ways in which I could reconstruct it. Um, which way would be more elegant, which way would be easier to sew together. Um, So that's how kind of how my brain's working, where I want to, I'm taking in different geometry. I might see shapes that like really speak to me and I really want to try to execute those. Um, I might see shapes where it's like, oh, that would be a really 
interesting challenge and I might just, I might just be up for a challenge. I want to see if I could sew it together. Um, and I do take geometry classes. Um, so especially early on in the pandemic, a lot of teaching pivoted to Zoom. And so there's a lot of geometers who offer courses um, around the world. Some are based in Turkey or Morocco or London. And I was able to take classes with those folks over Zoom from the comfort of my home here in Washington, DC. And so especially when we were more in lockdown and um, sticking home more, I just, I signed up for a weekly geometry class. That was just part of my Sunday routine as I'd hop on Zoom for four hours. Um, I take a class usually with a group called Art of Islam, Art of Islamic Pattern. Um, and they'd walk you through a construction. You would be doing it on paper with a ruler and compass, uh, very like manual traditional construction. And then I usually take those patterns and do it on my computer. And then once I had a digital version, I would start playing with that in terms of like patchwork. Hmm. Uh, could, could I do this with patchwork? Maybe it's more suited for applique, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's really fun how on some of your patterns, you include some of that inspiration and that history. Um, and also I've noticed that you give additional resources for quilters that if they want to go and deep dive even more into that um, pattern and that geometry, they can do that. And you kind of give them that inspiration is, is that an important part of what you do too, is about sharing your love of history and cultures with other quilters? Yeah, I would hope that um, anyone who down, downloads one of my patterns, um, they might just like the, they might just think it's pretty. They might think, oh, that quilt's pretty. I want to make that quilt. And that's great. Um, but I hope it might be the beginning of a conversation where they can be like, oh, this pattern these shapes have names. These shapes come from a place. Uh, one of the places I can find these shapes in the real world is X. Maybe I can find them in Morocco or in Spain or in Turkey. Because um, it's, I think it's nice to be able to make something that you find beautiful in your own home. So for us as quilters, a lot of that is are the quilts we make, the patchwork. But I also think it's nice to think of these um, creations being in conversation with other things. So uh, like most art is derivative. <laughs> we, we know that. Um, but that's not a bad word. I think it's, it's just, I think research and attribution is a really important part of that conversation. Um, and the thing I make is related to the thing that someone made maybe a, a hundred years ago, maybe a thousand years ago. And the thing that connects them might be the geometry or the shapes or the interplay of things. But I've chosen a very bold, saturated palette and the other maker chose a very, maybe a two-tone palette, or maybe they were working in like a specific, I don't know, color vocabulary as it were. So it's just kind of fun to see what the differences are, how they might be similar. And um, it's just more interesting when you think of them in conversation versus like an isolated quilt, like a yeah. quilt, that quilt's pretty, it has stars on it, it has pink, like that's cool. That can be your starting point, but I think you can kind of get deeper and think, oh, there's also this Moroccan uh, mosaic that exists in this city and think of them um, in conversation with each other. Yeah. Cause we're all, I mean, everything's all connected, right? So um, nothing is ever created in a vacuum. I think you had said once in, a, in our Meet the Maker profile that like all art, you know, we all 
uh, are inspired by each other and it continues to live on in other forms and other yeah, mediums, yeah. So. and I think I think today I think people are rightly um, cautious about appropriation and things like that but I think a way to hit it head on is just to 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 talk about where are your sources, where what's your starting point, what are you adding to the conversation. Um, I think I've talked to other people before about maybe I'm exploring a Turkish pattern or a Moroccan pattern. I will never make a Moroccan mosaic quilt because I am an American maker in Washington D.C., but I can definitely learn about Moroccan makers, learn from Moroccan makers. Um, learn about the ones present day, the ones historically. Um, I think the worst thing you can do is exclude that part of the conversation. And then everyone just assumes you came up with this really interesting design. Mm -hmm. I don't think it takes away from your creation in the least. I think it just adds to your um, creation because you can think of it in a, in a broader context. Well, I, I love to wrap up our interview here with what we call our rapid fire questions. So I have sure. five questions for you. So just um, whatever comes to your mind first. Um, so the first question is, what is your favorite part of the quilting process? I love designing and figuring out what pieces are going to come together. So a lot of my quilts start in Adobe Illustrator. I make those templates. Um, yeah, I really like figuring out a possible solution mm -hmm. is kind of how I think of an initial pattern as a possible solution. So your favorite part is like the very beginning. <laughs> the very beginning or the very last seam. Yeah. <laughs> book ending it, right? <laughs> right. Great. Okay. Second question. What is something that you are proud of? It could either be a project you've completed or a career or personal quilting goal. Um, I'm proud of recently uh, at QuiltCon this year, I lectured and taught. So I gave two lectures and I taught four classes. And I really just wanted to push myself out of my comfort zone a little uh, and try something new. And I was really pleased with how that went. I had great students. I had a lot of interesting feedback from my lectures. And it's, I think it's just nice to be able to contribute to the community and to contribute to conversations. Yeah. Okay. Question number three. What is typically playing in the background while you're quilting? Is it a podcast, <laughs> a playlist, a movie? What's your go-to? Uh, I um, am pretty boring. Half the time it is radio silence. Oh, wow. <laughs> I will operate just kind of work in a way. I won't even notice. Um, I won't even notice. It just, I'll just be working. I'll be in the zone. Uh, it'll be quiet and I will forget to eat lunch, that kind of thing. If it's not that, then um, usually I'm listening to like news podcasts, uh, just to kind of stay in the loop, that kind of thing. Sometimes music, uh, just for a little variety, but I'm a pretty boring person. Okay. <laughs> what is a favorite place you've ever visited and why? Uh, my favorite place, or a favorite place, I'm, I'm good, mm -hmm. I'm... I'm not good with single favorites, but one of my favorite places is Istanbul, Turkey. It is my favorite place to eat, uh, really good food. It is full of beautiful buildings. It's full of really great people, um, beautiful city. And um, one of my favorite quilts I've been teaching recently, the Ottoman Rings, comes from me being on a food tour there. So I did a, a walking tour around Istanbul that was food-based. 
Um, and one of our pit stops, I just stumbled into this pattern and I got obsessed with it and couldn't stop thinking about it. And now it is my Ottoman rings pattern. Okay. I love that. I love when travel can influence your, your passion and other art forms too. That's great. And a food tour. I mean, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last question. What do you appreciate most about being a quilter and being part of this larger community? I think that there's a lot of uh, important conversations that happen in different corners of the community. People are not afraid to ask questions, to question the status quo, um, to learn from other communities of practice, whether it's about like price transparency or questioning if it's like too consumeristic or um, talking about attribution and appropriation and things like that. Since we, a lot of quilt making is derivative art, just thinking about it, thinking about it critically. Um, yeah, I've noticed a lot of differing conversations, a lot of different opinions, and I've, I've just learned a lot from hearing people share their opinions and their findings. All right. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been so fascinating to get to know a little bit more about you and about your process. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Elizabeth. Hey, it's Lindsay. Thanks so much to both Ty and Elizabeth for that amazing chat. We will link to Ty's website and social media in our show notes so that you can connect with him more. Uh, you really need to see pictures of his quilts. They are truly stunning and that will just enhance the whole conversation they had today. Uh, Ty is also one of the featured makers in our American Patchwork and Quilting October issue. We have a special Meet the Makers story. Um, he is one out of the five. So that issue comes out just a few weeks from now in early August. So if you want to read more about him and the other makers we've featured, pick up the October issue on newsstands. And that's it for today's show. But before we leave, I just wanted to ask for everyone's help. In August, we're doing a podcast called Unpopular Quilty Opinions Part 2. We did part one last year, and it was so much fun. So if you have an unpopular quilty opinion to share, whether it's serious or, you know, more funny, email me at apqpodcast at meredith.com. I'll list that email in the show notes. Uh, the more opinions we have, the more fun and even thought-provoking the episode is. So I hope you email in. Everyone have the best week.